Chapter Four of Captain Antifer by Jules Verne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Chapter Four. Every Saturday about eight o'clock in the evening, Captain Antifer would smoke his pipe, a regular furnace, very short in the stem, and plunge into a blue rage from which he would emerge quite red an hour afterwards, when he had relieved himself at the expense of his neighbor and friend, Gildas Tregomain. And what caused this rage? simply as not being able to find what he wanted on one of the maps in an old atlas. "'Confound this latitude!' he would exclaim. "'If it even ran through the furnace of Beelzebub, I should have to follow it from one end to the other.' And until he put his plan into execution, Captain Antifer dug his nails into the said latitude and punctured it with pencil points and compass prods until it was as full of holes as a coffee strainer. The latitude which had brought down Antifer's objurgations was written at the end of a piece of parchment which was almost as yellow as an old Spanish flag. 24 degrees, 59 minutes north. Above this, in a corner of the parchment, were these words in red ink, Let my boy never find this. And Captain Antifer would exclaim, Never fear, my good old father. I have not forgotten it, nor will I ever forget it. But may the three patron saints of my baptism bless me, if I know what use it can ever be. It is the 23rd of February, 1862, and this evening Captain Antifer is behaving himself as usual. He is in a howling rage. He is swearing like a topman when a rope slips through his hands. He is grinding away at the pebble which he has in his mouth. He is pulling away at his pipe, which has gone out twenty times, and which he has lighted again and again from a box of matches. He has thrown his atlas into one corner, his chair into another. He has smashed a big shell on the mantelpiece. He has stamped so as to shake down flakes of whitewash from the ceiling. And in a voice accustomed to be heard above a roaring gale, he shouts, Nanon, Enogate, making a speaking trumpet out of a roll of cardboard. Enogate and Nanon, the one busy knitting and the other in front of the kitchen stove, judged it time to put a stop to their troubled domestic elements. One of the good old houses of St. Malo, built of granite, facing the Rue des Hautes-Celles, a ground floor and two stories, each containing two rooms, and the upper one at the back, overlooking the road round the ramparts. There you could see its walls of granite thick enough to defy the projectiles of the olden days, the narrow windows with the iron bars, the massive gate of heart of oak, ornamented with iron fastenings, and furnished with a knocker you could hear at St. Servan when Captain Antifer had it in hand. Its slate roof pierced with dormer windows, from which the old sailor's telescope was occasionally visible. This house, half a casemate, half a fortress, adjoining an angle of the ramparts which surrounded the town, has a superb view. To the right, Grand Bay, a corner of Cézembre, the Pointe du Décollet, and Cape Frehel. To the left, the jetty and the mole, the mouth of the Ronce, the beach of Préaure near Dinard, and the grey dome of saint Servan. Formerly, saint Malo was an island, and perhaps Captain Antifer regretted the time when he would have been called an islander. But the ancient Aaron has become a peninsula, and he has to make the best of it. Besides, one has the right to be proud at being a child of the Breton city, which has given so many great men to France. Among others, Duguay Tuan, whose statue our worthy mariner saluted every time he crossed the square, La Manai, although this writer in no way interested him, and Chateaubriand, whose best work he did not know, and whose proud and modest tomb on the little island of Grand Bay we cannot pass without mention. Captain Antifer, Pierre Servan Malo, was then forty-six years old. 
Eighteen months before, he had retired from the sea with a certain independence, which sufficed for himself and his people. A few thousand francs in the funds had resulted from his service on the two or three ships he had commanded, which had always hailed from St. Malo. These ships belonged to Le Bailiff and Company, and traded in the Channel, in the North Sea, in the Baltic, and even in the Mediterranean. Before obtaining this lofty position, Captain Antifer had been about the world a great deal. A good seaman, very enterprising, hard master to himself and others, never sparing himself, his courage beyond reproach, his obstinacy unyielding, the obstinacy of a true Breton. Did he regret the sea? No, for he had left it in the prime of his life. Had his health anything to do with this resolve? No, for he was built of the pure granite of the Breton coast. It was quite enough to look at him, to hear him, to receive one of the grips of his hand, of which he was not sparing. Figure a sturdy man of medium height and thickish neck. Here is his description in detail. A woolen cap, hair bristling like the quills of a porcupine, face tanned, cooked and recooked by seawater, and bronzed by the sun of southern latitudes. Beard like a lichen on the rocks, with the gray hairs bristling all round it. Bright eyes, veritable carbuncles beneath the arched eyebrows, with the pupils black as jet and gleaming like a cat's. Nose big at the end and long enough to carry the spectacles and with two wrinkles at the base near the eyes. Teeth complete, sound and healthy, clicking with the convulsions of the jaw, particularly as their owner always had a pebble in his mouth. Ears hairy, tip erect, lobe pendant, one of them with a copper ring on which an anchor was engraved. Body rather thin, set on nervous legs firm enough on their strong supports, and straddling at the most appropriate angle for dealing with the rolling and pitching of his ship at sea. Evidently a man of unusual strength, due to the muscles massed together like the rods in a Roman lictor's bundle. A man, drinking well and eating well, who would have a clean bill of health for many a long day. But of what irritability, nervousness, and impetuosity was the individual capable, who forty-six years before had been entered in the parish register under the name of Pierre Servan Malot Antifer. And this evening he stormed and raved, and the house shook, so that you would think that there was a beating round its foundations one of those equinoctial tides which rise for fifty feet and cover half the town with spray. Nanon, the widow of La Goat, forty-eight years of age, was the sister of this noisy sailor. Her husband, a clerk at Le Bailiff's, had died young, leaving her a daughter, Enogate, who had been brought up by Uncle Antifer, who fulfilled his functions as a guardian with conscientiousness and discipline. Nanon was a worthy woman, loving her brother, trembling before him and bending when he stormed. Enogate, charming with her golden hair, her blue eyes, her fresh carnation color, her intelligent face, her natural grace, more resolute than her mother, and sometimes standing up to her terrible guardian, who adored her and did his best to make her the happiest of the girls of St. Malo, as she was one of the prettiest. But perhaps his idea of happiness was not quite the same as that of his niece and ward. The two women appeared at the door of his room, the one with her long knitting needles, the other with the flat iron she had just taken from the front of the fire. "'What is the matter?' asked Nanon. "'Only my latitude, my confounded latitude,' answered Captain Antifer, and he gave himself a knock on the head which would have cracked any other crown than that which nature had fortunately given him. "'Uncle,' said Nogate, "'the latitude that troubles you is no reason for you putting your room into disorder.' And she picked up the atlas, 
while Nanan gathered together the pieces of shell that had been scattered about as if it had gone off like a bomb. Did you break that? Yes, I did, and if anyone else had done it, he would have had a bad quarter of an hour. Why did you throw it down? Because my hand itched. This shell was a present from our brother, said Nanan, and you are to blame. Well, if you were to keep on repeating it to tomorrow that I am to blame, will that put it back again? What will Cousin Jewel say? asked the Nogate. He will say nothing, and he had better say nothing, replied Antifer, regretting that he had only got the two women before him, on whom he could not reasonably gratify his anger. And by the by, he added, where is Jewel? You know, uncle, that he has gone to Nantes, replied Anogay. Nantes? That is something new. What is he going to do at Nantes? Uncle, you yourself sent him there. You know his examination for a certificate as long voyage captain? Long voyage captain, long voyage captain, growled Antifer. Why could he not be content to be a coasting captain, like me? Brother, said Nanan, timidly, he only took your advice. You wished. Well, because I wished it, that is a fine reason. And if I had not wished it, would he not have gone all the same? Besides, he will fail. No, uncle. But he will. And if he does, I will give him a reception. A regular whirlwind. You see, there was no way of reasoning with this man. On the one hand, he did not want Jewel to go up for the examination. And on the other, if he failed, the said pupil would catch it, as would those asses of examiners, those peddlers in hydrography. But Anogate had evidently a presentiment that the young man would not be rejected. First of all, because he was her cousin. Then, because he was an intelligent, studious young man. And then, because he loved her, and she loved him, and they were engaged to be married. And you imagine three better reasons than those? We may add that Jewel was a nephew of Captain Antifer, who had acted as guardian to him until he became of age. He had been left an orphan at an early age by the death of his mother, who had died at his birth, and by the death of his father, a naval lieutenant whose death took place a few years afterwards. We need not be astonished that it was written above that he should be a sailor. That he would obtain his captain's certificate, Anoge did not doubt, nor did his uncle for that matter although he was too bad-tempered to say so. And this was of all the more importance to the girl, as her marriage was to take place when he passed his examination. The two young people really loved each other, and would probably be happy for the rest of their lives. Nanan was delighted to see the day coming of this wedding, which was approved of by all the family. What obstacle could there be if the all-powerful head gave his consent? Or rather, refrained from giving it until Jewel had won his captaincy. Jewel had served a complete apprenticeship to his trade, first on vessels belonging to Le Beliefs, then in government vessels, and then as mate for three years in the mercantile marine. He knew his trade in practice and theory, and Captain Antifer was really proud of his nephew, but perhaps he had dreamt of a richer alliance for him because he was a lad of real merit. Perhaps he had even wished for a better husband for his niece, than whom there was no better-looking girl in the whole district. And if a million had fallen into his hands, and he was as happy with his five thousand pounds in the funds, it is not impossible that he would have lost his head and indulged in some such senseless dream. Inogate and Nanan soon introduced a little order into the room of this terrible man, if not his brain. Antifer strode around rubbing his eyes, in which the lightning still lurked, a sign that the storm was not yet over, and a flash might come at any minute. And when he looked at his barometer hung on the wall, his anger awoke again because the scrumptious and faithful instrument remained at fine weather. And so Jewel has not come back, he asked, 
turning towards Anogate. No, uncle. And it is ten o'clock. No, uncle. You will see, he will miss the train. No, uncle. Ah, uh, are you going to do nothing but contradict me? No, uncle. Nanon might gesticulate in vain, for evidently the young Briton was resolved to defend her cousin against the unjust accusations of her boisterous uncle. Evidently the thunderclap was not far off. But was there not a lightning conductor to take off the whole of the electricity accumulated in Captain Antifer's reservoirs? Perhaps so. That was why Nanon and her daughter hastened to obey him when he yelled in the voice of a stentor, Send Tregomain here. They rushed from the room, opened the street door, and ran out in search of Tregomain. It is to be hoped he is at home, they said to each other. He was, and five minutes afterwards he was in the presence of Captain Antifer. Gildas Tregomain, 51. Points of resemblance with his neighbor, a bachelor as he was, had navigated as he had, no longer navigated as he no longer navigated, had retired as he had, was a native of St. Malo as he was. There the resemblance ended. Gildas Tregomain was as calm as Antifer was stormy as philosophical as Antifer was the reverse, as accommodating as Antifer was difficult to get on with. Physically, the friends were even more unlike if possible. They were close friends, but the friendship of Antifer for Tregomain was far more intelligible than that of Tregomain for Antifer. To be the friend of such a man was not without its drawbacks. We have said that Tregomain had navigated, but there are navigators and navigators. Antifer had visited the principal seas of the globe, but not so his neighbor. Tregomain, being the son of a widow, had been exempt from serving the state, and he had never been on the sea. Never. He had seen the channel from the heights of Cancal, and even from Cape Frail, but he had never ventured on it. He had been born in the painted cabin of a canal barge, and in a barge he had spent his life, first as a hand, then as captain of the Charmante Amelie. He had been up and down the rance from Dinard to Dinan, from Dinan to Plumago, to return with a load of wood, of wine, of coal, according to the trade. He hardly knew of any other river. He was a freshwater sailor, no more and no less, while Antifer was the saltiest of salts, a mere boatman by the side of a coaster captain. And so he lowered his flag in the presence of his neighbor and friend, who had no difficulty in keeping him at a distance. Tregomain lived in a pretty little house, about a hundred yards away from Antifer's, at the end of the Rue de Toulot, near the ramparts. One view looked out to the sea, the other over the mouth of the Rance. He was a powerful man, of extraordinary breadth of shoulder, nearly a yard. Five feet six inches in height, a body like a box, invariably wearing a huge waistcoat with two rows of bone buttons, a brown jacket, always very clean, with great folds in the back and at the armholes. From this trunk came two huge arms big enough for the thighs of an ordinary man, terminated by enormous hands, big enough for the feet of a grenadier of the old guard. With such limbs and muscles, Tregomain could not be otherwise than of enormous strength, but he was a gentle Hercules. Never had he abused his strength, and never did he shake hands but with his thumb and index finger, for fear of smashing your fingers. Strength was latent in him, and never ent as far as blows, but manifested itself without effort. To compare him with machines, he was less of a sledgehammer than of the hydraulic press. That came from the circulation of his blood, great and generous, slow and insensible. From his shoulders rose a big head, wearing a high hat with a broad brim. 
His hair was flat, his whiskers mutton-chopped, his nose curved, his mouth smiling, his lower lip projecting, his chin double and even treble, his teeth white, one incisor on the top row missing, teeth which had never been stained with the smoke of a pipe. Eyes limpid and kind under thick brows, color brick-red due to the breezes of the rants and not to the stormy gales of the ocean. Such was Gildas Tregomain, one of those obliging men to whom you can say, Come at twelve o'clock, come at two o'clock, and they will always be there. He was also a sort of unshakable rock, against which the surges of Captain Antifer beat in vain. When his neighbor was in one of his whirlwind moods, he was sent for, and he came to placidly take all the buffetings of this tumultuous personage. And so the ex-captain of the Charmant Amélie was adored in the house, by Nanon, to whom he served as a rampart, by Jewel, who had vowed eternal friendship for him, by Anogate, who did not hesitate to kiss his rounded cheeks and his wrinkled forehead that incontestable sign of a calm and conciliating temperament, according to the physiognomist. As the boatman mounted the wooden staircase that led to the first floor, the steps groaned under the heavy weight. Pushing open the door, he found himself in the presence of Captain Antifer. End of chapter 4